From Luminary and Built It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the struggle to get from success to mastery. When the archer hit that bullseye, you know, that's success. But mastery is doing what they did for the entirety of that practice, knowing that it means nothing if you can't do it again and again. Sarah Lewis and the importance of near wins. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. Sarah Lewis is an associate professor of history of art and architecture and of African and African-American studies at Harvard. She served on President Obama's Arts Policy Committee and is the creator of the Vision and Justice Project, which examines how visual art intersects with issues of race, social justice, and democracy. That project spawned an exhibition, an award-winning issue of Aperture magazine, a hugely popular TED Talk, and a brand new class at Harvard that is now part of its core curriculum. But despite her considerable accomplishments, Dr. Lewis has also spent a lot of time thinking about failure. Specifically, the formative role failure plays in the development of people who have gained real mastery in art, athletics, and in leadership. It's the subject of her book, The Rise, Creativity, the Gift of Failure, and the Search for Mastery. One of Sarah's own formative experiences with failure came during high school, when she was a student at Brearley, an all-girls private school in Manhattan. It was the mid-1990s, and she was an aspiring artist. There was this major event hosted by the NAACP, 
it was at Olympiads and included in those were art competitions. And I had won in freshman year for a painting that I had thought kind of nothing of. I just submitted this painting and won what was a huge award at the time. It was a thousand dollars and a computer. You know, I was 14 and the award ceremony took place in a football field. Can you imagine? A football wow. field is huge. So imagine you're that young, you know, you parade down this field. And at the end, who gives me the award? None other than Cornell West. Wow. Incredible. So that was a major event in this young 14-year-old life of mine. And then senior year, I decided to submit again, and I didn't win anything. Hmm. And it seems so minor, maybe in hindsight, but at the time, I was devastated. And I was also embarrassed, the shame associated with that. Uh, but especially because it was for something that mattered to me, you know, being an artist, it felt like an indictment or my lack of skill or something. And so it, it forced a kind of inner reckoning for me about what I wanted to do and who I felt that I was meant to be kind of in the world, despite what the external reviewers ha had thought. And, and, and you would actually go on to write your college essay about that experience. Um, what, what about that experience made you want to did you want to write about it? Oh, sure. That event was so significant in my life. I was writing an essay to apply early to Harvard, where I now teach. And, you know, the essay, the, the personal essay, as they call it, is so high stakes, right? It's uh, your kind of one chance to really distinguish yourself beyond the transcript and the letters. And it wasn't um, necessarily advisable to write about failure. So I hid the topic from my guidance counselor, from my parents. I asked my parents to leave the house for <laughs> some afternoon that Saturday. And I just got to work writing, writing longhand, you know, in my little bedroom. And I wrote about the resilience that came, as I saw it at that young age of 17, from that experience. I never forgot it, both the experience of it, of writing it, and and the sort of inner bravery it took to just make that decision. Hmm. And, and you did, of course, get into Harvard. But somewhere uh, in, in there, you switched from focusing on, on making art to studying art history. I did. I was starting to become focused on how cultural leaders made significant impact in the United States in particular, and became as interested in the history as I was in the practice of creating art. So I switched. But the fact that I am a practitioner of sorts, you know, that I can create, and certainly as a writer now, uh, am an artist gives me a, a different perspective on the stakes right behind the process that goes into uh, a craft. Um, after you graduated um, with your, your bachelor's degree, you went into the art world to, to, to work in a curatorial position, um, I think initially at the Museum of Modern Art and then, and then on to the Tate Modern in London. And one of the things that I read about your experience that really struck you was you would go and visit artists in their studios and it wasn't the art that they were working on that was visible that caught your attention but it was the paintings that were turned around the back turned paintings can you talk a little bit about the significance of those back turned paintings what were they and why did they catch your eye i was at the time at the museum of modern art working on a retrospective of the late um 
great artist, Elizabeth Murray. And in her studio, she had works that she didn't want to be in the retrospective. And one was actually, um, of a, I remember a glass of beer that in the end made it in because the curator saw in it a kind of innovation that catalyzed her next chapter. And that exchange between her and the curator and I about this kind of back-turned work really struck me. The public recognition, the public narrative of any innovation is an intentional presentation to the world. What catalyzes the chapters that we're celebrating, the kind of triumphs and successive feats is often determined by what didn't quite make the cut in their mind, but was effectively an experiment and a critical one. We oftentimes call artist studios, you know, studios, but we really should be calling them laboratories, I would say. Mm. You know, they're arenas for innovation and initiative and experimentation. So the back turn paintings are effectively these uh, these experiments, these questions that they've posited to themselves. And in the end, what gives a work propulsion it is a long-standing question that an artist attempts to address over time. And if we're lucky, we get to see what they've deemed to be an accurate way to answer it. But what we need to see are the kind of connective tissue between each work. And those are the back-turned paintings. The back-turned paintings are the ones that they that aren't good enough. The ones that they started working on and maybe worked on for a long time, but 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 turn them around because uh, they, f- from the perspective of the artist, they're not worthy of being shown. Yes, but I should clarify. I mean, I use the term back turned painting to really signify the distinction between external audiences and the internal world of the artist. I mean, Mm. so much of why I wrote about the distinction between success and mastery in the rise is because, you know, when it comes to artistic endeavors, creative endeavors, success is oftentimes the wrong word, you know, because success connotes an external validation, right, that's been conferred on you. And oftentimes what an artist is doing when they're turning that work to the wall isn't necessarily even just deeming it a a failure in their own mind, but they're shielding it from external assessment. The creative process is embryonic. We need to be able to shield innovations at an early stage of development in order to allow full flourishing, just as we do anything that needs to grow in the context of human biology. And so the the back turned is is a way to protect the holistic uh, process. It, it strikes me, and 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 you've you've talked about this and written about this that, that that experience as a young curator and being exposed to these these quote sort of back turned paintings really kind of got you to think about the process of mastering something, anything, mm-hmm. art or science or literature, mm-hmm. and in that process. Um, there's a lot of quote unquote back turned paintings. I mean, you can probably talk to any novelist <laughs> and only to discover that there are hundreds of pages that were written um, for a novel that, that were discarded or, or put aside, but they needed to be written in order to get to where that novel got to. No, absolutely. I mean, the fundamental question I ask in writing The Rise is really, you know, 
how many times have we looked at a work of art or read a novel and not known that the artist just considers that work a near win, a back-turned painting? And the answer is more times than we could possibly know. So in terms of writing, you know, Franz Kafka is a good example here. He wanted all of his works, you know, manuscripts, even his diaries burned upon his death. He thought that the works were that incomplete. But he told this to a friend of his, Max Broad, some friend, Max Broad published all the works we have by Kafka against his wishes, right? And one work is so incomplete that it even stops uh, mid-sentence. William Faulkner is another example, even The Sound and the Fury, which is celebrated as a classic, has as an appendix to one of the later editions, a, a better ending as William Faulkner saw it, right? These examples are really countless. So let's let's dive into this idea of of success versus mastery. Um, what, what what is the difference between success and mastery? Success is a label that the external world confers upon you, but mastery is an orientation towards your achievement that turns it into a curved line, constant pursuit. Mastery is an ever onward almost. Now, mastery, by my definition, can sound or seem arduous, and it is. There is a sense of constant, productive dissatisfaction with mastery. There's a sense of a constant near win that's associated with mastery. So I, I came to think about this distinction not in the abstract. I should just kind of paint a picture for you. Um, mm. I thought of it when I was reading this extraordinary piece in the New York Times about a set of Olympic caliber archers, of all things, who were all women at Columbia University. And I was living in New York at the time and decided to see if I could watch them in action and found my way up to their team's field and spent the afternoon with them one really cold day in May and just saw them making literal the distinction between these two ideas. Archery is an arduous pursuit. Mm. <laughs> and mm. between, you know, the weight of the draw um, bow and the arrow and accommodating the wind direction and your level of concentration, it's, it's extraordinary what they do. And I eventually saw the archers starting to have their shots kind of group and hit the bullseye. And then periodically wouldn't land on the target at all, and they would vary over the hour that I was there. When the archer hit that bullseye, you know, that's success. That's achieving a goal that the numerical target tells you, the external world tells you, is what you want. But mastery is doing what they did for the entirety of that practice, which is what expertise is all about, knowing that it means nothing if you can't do it again and again. But they weren't just motivated by having hit that 10 ring, they were motivated by, as I saw it, the frustration that came in from hitting the 7, and then the 9, and then the 8, and then finally the 10. They were propelled by the near win. And if you study counterfactual thinking, you'll find that the, our cognition is really 
activated by the experience of just coming shy of your goal. Hmm. And it happens in our everyday lives. You know, if you just miss a plane by a few minutes, you'll probably never miss a plane again, you know, versus if missing it by a longer period of time. Sarah Lewis described mastery as, quote, an ever onward almost. And I was curious, if you're forever almost getting there, how do you hold on to any hope? There's a certain humility about this idea that the pursuit of mastery is never ending, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's like mm-hmm. it's like a, a life's journey. Um, but the flip side of that could also be read as knowing we are never good enough. Is that mm-hmm. is that true? I appreciate the question, and it's really important, the distinction, I think. The way you framed it, knowing that we're never good enough, part of what's so central, as I found speaking to hundreds of individuals over the course of what, five, six years, is that disaggregating the feedback that comes from the near win as information versus commentary on your identity is really key. So the near win should never be a statement of oneself not being good enough, right? But instead, it should be a way to frame just action or practice or, you know, habits. Because it can be, I think, a debilitating experience to let your identity be framed by your accomplishment or, or lack thereof. I was just watching a film that my dear friends uh, made Jimmy Chin and Chai Vassarelli, The Rescue, and it's a film about the Thai cave rescue team. And there's this moment in which the British divers who are part of the Thai mm-hmm. team that helped to save these boys speak about what it takes to initially have failed in, in accomplishing that goal and then to find a way to do it. And one of the divers said, you know, I had to just find a way to put my emotions in a box on the shelf and then get into that water and do what I needed to do. There is a disaggregation that you need to be able to create for yourself with any endurance test, whether it's diving in that context, whether it's the long range haul of of creating over time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. Should we, when should we stop and mm -hmm. celebrate our <laughs> achievements ever? I mean, does, cele does celebrating mm -hmm. give us a false sense of accomplishment? I'm with you. It's, it, <laughs> it's definitely um, important. And I, I know I take the time to really mark moments, but there, and there are a number of things tied into this great question. Um, one is about the importance of positive affirmation. And we, I think we live in a society in the U.S. in which we really focus on this. Uh, and we would say rightly so. I think my, my colleague and friend, Angela Duckworth's research on grit offers us a way to maybe think about it differently. She's studied grit and found that it's the best predictor of success in the conventional definition of it or achievement, as I would say, even in contexts like the U.S. military's first summer for their cadets in which they're weeding out their candidates. Grit is a better predictor of achievement more so than talent or IQ, as she's found. Mm. And what her research has also shown is that the focus on praise and celebration in our educational context um, doesn't necessarily correlate with developing these skills. So we, we live in a society in which kind of everyone gets a trophy for participating mm. and competing, but we do need to balance that. The way I like to frame it is to think about how we can create rituals around our efforts. And that's somewhat different than celebrating. I think we've forgotten about the power of ritual, which allows us to mark moments in time to both congratulate ourselves, but to think about the next chapter as well. Duke Ellington would say about his music when someone would ask, you know, what's your favorite song? Oh, the next one, mm -hmm. he would say, you know, always the one that's yet to come, right? So it's an eternal dance. This is how we're hardwired. There's no real getting around it. <laughs> you know, and I think it's it's our task to embrace. You quote from James Baldwin. He was asked in, in an interview, uh, you know, what what increases with knowledge? What part of you grows? Mm -hmm. And his answer, and I'm paraphrasing, was something to the effect of, you realize how little you know, the mm -hmm. more you learn, you re realize how little you know. And, and I think it's, yeah. it's such a powerful quote, because it speaks to this idea that there's no there's no end. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the, the notion of mastery is not, as you say, a destination, mm -hmm. right? And and people who are trying to master something understand that there there is no destination. That's right. 
That's right. Exactly. So in the end, you have to learn to love the path. You know, you really have to learn to love the pursuit. And that's very much what Duke Ellington's saying. That's really what's also behind James Baldwin's quote. You can't endure that kind of fate unless you love it. In his case, the writing, you know. Um, some people get around this by embracing the the need to stay curious the way that an amateur does, you know. Mm. I mean, we're speaking here about the difficulties that can creep in with expertise, which you know, anyone who's listening, even if they're not an artist, probably endeavors to have or, or has. And what starts to creep in is oftentimes forgetfulness about the questions that were asked before one knew what one was doing, you know? And that became, for me, one of the most exciting parts of researching this topic was studying how people found ways around the frustration that can creep in when you live the near wind that much, when you live what James Baldwin's describing that much. And they oftentimes do it by giving themselves spaces in which they can be a what I call deliberate amateur. Many of your examples are about artists and athletes, but I think it also applies to people who perform in in virtually every sphere. I mean, if you are a professor or if mm-hmm. you are a leader or a manager or I mean it's it the idea of seeking mastery is a, is a universal notion. It's not something that just applies to to those in sort of the obviously artistic realm, right? Mhm. Mhm. Exactly. When we when we speak about innovation, it's not restricted to the arts at all. And so all these tactics, you know, are applicable to to every domain. I I find that ability to let yourself be a deliberate amateur, for example, is something that I allow into my classrooms at Harvard, you know, whether it's allowing for some assignment to not be graded for the students so that they can perhaps take risks that they wouldn't have ordinarily because they want that A. <laughs> but I, I think that even in the context of experimentation, um, this is important, even in the sciences, there were two individuals who really influenced my thinking on this, and they won the Nobel Prize recently for the discovery of graphene. And graphene is revolutionizing the electronics industry. It's thinner than silk. It's stronger than steel. One of the most conductive materials we've ever found. It's like a wonder material. But they found it using really rudimentary means, so basic and almost childlike that they were laughed and kind of at and ridiculed by the most preeminent journal in the sciences, uh, as they tell me, nature. And uh, when they effectively won the Nobel Prize for what they actually had discovered, uh, they spoke about the importance of play and curiosity. They had crafted this tactic for themselves of creating what they called Friday night experiment time, times where they would permit themselves to just drop their expertise, just forget about what they knew that they knew and ask questions that experts wouldn't dare. And they would do this uh, periodically, even with the postdocs in the laboratory. So everyone was involved. And some of the experiments were really outlandish, like 
trying to see if a gecko's hairy feet could replicate a technique for a tape that would let human beings climb up walls, you know, crazy things, uh, levitating things with magnets, which they did, and won them an Ig Nobel Award <laughs> for things that are so outlandish that they first make you laugh and then make you think. Um, and the third experiment was, in fact, what won them the Nobel Prize uh, for the discovery of graphene, which they found by just successively ripping off layers of carbon hmm. or graphite, just hanging out in an ordinary pencil and sticking it under a microscope after successive rips and realizing that they had found just a one atom layer of this material known as uh, graphene. And that was thinner than any recorded attempt by any other scientist prior. You've written that creativity and failure ba basically go hand in hand. And you have so many mm -hmm. wonderful anecdotes in your book, including one I just want to briefly mention about Paul Taylor, who was a dancer, yeah. a choreographer, debuted this modernist movement, Seven New Dances, um, many years ago, and it was unusual. I mean, there were scenes in this performance of him and other dancers just standing there on stage for minutes at a time. Um, <laughs> you, and you could argue that it was, it was far ahead of its time. And it was, a, I think, at the time, a commercial failure, right? It was a critical failure, but it, it would lead to other innovations in, in the work that he presented. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I I love that story about Paul Taylor. He was debuting a very minimalist avant-garde style of dance, and it was panned in terms of the reviews, right? He received a review that was so creative. You have to love it. The reviewer decided that it was so minimalist that he wasn't going to write anything. So he left the newsprint completely blank under Paul Taylor's <laughs> and, the, and the location of the dance. And Paul Taylor had such a great sense of humor about it. He said, oh, it wasn't even a very big blank. You know? But he pursued his unique style nonetheless. But that blank review effectively is a, is a metaphor for what all of the artists that we celebrate or those that we don't know must at some point contend with, right? Uh, Someone who doubts, someone who doesn't understand, someone who sees an innovation as a failure. And oftentimes, innovations can seem to be failures because they're so ahead of their time. Hmm. Um, how, so, so this leads to um, the next question. This is an elusive question. Okay. Um, and, there, and there's no magical answer to the question because I think if, if if there was somebody who could answer this question, they would be a seer. They would be, you know, uh, uh, they would have solved a, an age-old question. But there are there are ways to approach it. And, and, and the basic question is, if creativity and failure lead to innovation, right, that by thinking in a creative way, it allows you, it gives you license to take risks that may result in failure and that probably should – how do we begin? How do we start? What are the ways that we can actually encourage creative behavior? It's a great question. I think I have a number of ways to answer it, but the central theme of what I'm about to say is that 
one must, we all must begin to embrace the paradox of any innovative pursuit, which is that the very gift or skill that you think is required also will make requisite its exact opposite. So if you think that it will just take grit, you are also going to have to know when to quit, right? If you think that success is going to be a way to determine your achievement, you have to master the near win. You have to master mastery in the end. And finally, I think you have to be able to pursue a goal, but also understand what surrender is. And that's a more spiritual sort of orientation. Mm -hmm. The paradox is key here. I would go back though to how you framed the discussion of creativity and say that it's not that individuals think creatively and therefore take risks, but that they take risks and therefore can think creatively. And mm -hmm. that leads to innovation. And I, I want to emphasize that because it reminds us that we are all capable of new ways of seeing a problem. Mm -hmm. I fully rebuke the idea that people only of a kind of certain orientation or just affinity to the arts, for example, are creative. I think that's yeah. fundamentally disuntrue. Um, I think the question more becomes what culture are you surrounding yourself with, or are you either born into or work in that is preventing you from taking risks? And once you can identify what those factors are and eliminate them and give yourself a space in which, you know, there's no shame associated with what you're thinking or doing or putting out into the world, then you'll see your own creativity flourish and you'll be surprised. You can be creative in pretty much any pursuit you're engaged in. She does caution against corporate attempts to force creativity, though, say with intentional collaboration time or open office plans. And to demonstrate how those things can lead to groupthink and actually squelch creativity, she points to the example of The Blacklist. The Blacklist was started by Franklin Leonard, who was a Hollywood film exec. And he was frustrated that he wasn't able to identify excellent, unusual screenplays in Hollywood to greenlight. He was working at the production companies for Will Smith and then Leonardo DiCaprio um, and wanted to find a way to do this. And so he, he said that he would just take it upon himself to do something very simple, anonymously, actually. He sent out a, an email to colleagues, all individual emails to approximately 95 of them, all other studio execs. And he asked them a simple question, which screenplays do you secretly love? And then he wanted the caveat to be ones that they knew hadn't been financed and that they knew would not be in theaters in the next 12 months. Mm. He tabulates the answers, creates a list based upon the number of votes. He went on vacation, it was 2005, so he could turn off his cell phone for the week he was gone. And he came back, turned it on, and found that this document had gone absolutely viral. It was anonymous, so no one knew that he had created this list, but everyone stopped and said, wait, who? created this list. And are you kidding? People think that this screenplay is really what they want to watch. And it was populated with screenplays that were publicly discussed as failures, you know, <laughs> would never get made, right? <laughs> it's ludicrous. Things like um, Juno or Lars and the Real Girl, if you know the plot line mm -hmm. for that, it's, you know, man falls in love with 
Sex Doll and or other screenplays that in subsequent years would make it onto what became known as the Brit List. The British version of this was uh, The King's Speech. Yeah. David Seidler could not get that made, right? It was through groupthink and collaboration. It was seen as a potential dud. Now, what I find fascinating is why yeah. <laughs> there's such variance. And there's an answer. It's really because we are replicating the Solomon Ash experiment every time we collaborate with a group without knowing it. So Solomon Ash created an experiment in which he was just asking of a subject a very simple question in private, which they always got mm-hmm. right. And it was, you know, which line on one card is equivalent to the line on, on another card. And you have three options on one card and you just match it up. It's very simple. Mm-hmm. In the other version of the experiment, when he puts a subject with other individuals who've all been told to give the wrong answer, the subject's correct answer rate drops to 25%. So when the subject is put into a group of people who were told to answer wrong on purpose, that the, 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 that subject would go along with the wrong answer like 75% of the time, even even when they knew they were wrong? Wow, it's, wow. Now that's, that's what really gets my noodle. So they simply have convinced themselves that they must be wrong, that everyone else around them is correct. There's real courage required to state a dissent in the context of groupthink. You know, it's not simply a matter of knowing what's right and doing it. It's as if the brain is saying there's real danger here. If you do this, you're going against everything around you. And so and when I was talking to Franklin Leonard, a similar thing would crop up. He would say to me, well, what are the odds that I'm going to give an unusual screenplay to my boss as something he should read over the weekend if there's no past metric of success to indicate that it will be a winner? Right. Mm. Um, a good example of this is uh, the film version of of Annie was hard to get made because there was no comparable cartoon to film examples that indicated that it was going to do well. <laughs> the only one was, I believe, it was Batman, and so they mm. had a hard time, you know, comparing apples to oranges. And that's what's happening in the experiment. You're asked to compare a line on the left to the lines on the right. Which one is the same? So when it comes to unusual creative endeavors, oftentimes institutions, industries are trying to use that kind of thinking. Give me an example of a past scenario that will let me embrace this unusual thing, you know? And if you can't do that, you have a a courageous sort of endeavor on your hands. And so that group think can blunt many ideas that our organizations need and that we need, but There are ways around it, and oftentimes it comes from the opposite of what we think creativity requires, which is privation. You know, Mm. all of those studio execs were giving their answers in private to Franklin, right? When they were writing back, they weren't doing it as a group email with 95 folks, you know, reply all. It was just tell me in an anonymous context. What do you really think? Oh, King Speech? Oh, Slumdog Millionaire? Oh, really? And then we see what what happened. The Academy Awards and the 15 years after the Blacklist came out were populated with screenplays that came from this reframing device. Yeah, it's pretty extraordinary. 
Yeah, I mean the 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 blacklist example and Franklin Leonard's innovation is, um, as you mentioned, so many amazing films have come from that. And I think it's still released every year, mm-hmm. um, a, a version mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. Um, but in in organizational settings, whether it's at companies or corporations or or even universities where you are, there are still settings with lots of people in a room where mm-hmm. big decisions are discussed. And mm-hmm. is there a way? to create the kind of spirit that leads to the blacklist. Mm-hmm. Is there a way to mm-hmm. create a space where you can actually move away from groupthink? I think so, absolutely. I mean, there, there are many examples, and it's such a great point. I, it really does come down to culture and leadership. The idea of embodying or planting someone who's deliberately doubting the consensus, right, who who enforces a pause before people run headlong off with a consensus that might have been come to too quickly is an important way that I know a lot of corporate organizations get around this. There are a few leaders who I interviewed for The Rise who had that as a practice, that if there was consensus that you know his, his kind of cabinet crew came to too quickly, he would say, well, if there's no dissent, I, I propose that we reconvene when there's some dissent that we can speak about and then <laughs> arrive at our decision. And that comes from leadership. Um, I think that the other way it's done, as I've seen it, is by institutionalizing safe ways to discuss near wins and failures. There's the Mayo Clinic. We're curious about how to innovate uh, different patents and decided to institute an award that would allow for innovations that didn't quite make it to be publicly celebrated because of what they had allowed for. And they gave the award a name, a Queasy Eagle Award, kind of a near win award, mm-hmm. <laughs> like not having a full flight effectively. But they had linear growth prior to these awards being given, and then they had exponential growth in the 18-month period afterwards. So again, it's a signal of a cultural change. Hmm. I, I recently, um, with, with some colleagues, um, we stopped to celebrate a milestone. And, and I have to admit, I am uncomfortable with, with, with doing that. And, and, um, and I think it's in part because I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, always, I'm always worried about that that you know that that I'm always one step away from catastrophic failure, and this is just a probably a personality um, a quirk uh, of mine, and I'm sure there are other people listening who share it. But um, but I have to say that I think one of the reasons why I don't stop and celebrate achievement, which I, I, I I'll be the first to admit I think is a uh, a failing, but I think the reason why I don't do it is because the journey of pursuing quote unquote success, mm-hmm. the ups and downs, the drama, the the pain and suffering um, is actually there's something really fulfilling about it too. You know, that mm-hmm. that that in a sense is that is the celebration. I completely agree. You know, it's what I meant when I, I said that you have to love the path. You, mm. know, you have to love the pursuit. I completely agree. Yeah. It just mm-hmm. it it really um that that idea of the near win I think really it really speaks to me. I mean, I think it really it's a very hopeful idea that it's what you're looking for is always just out of reach, but that's okay mm-hmm. because if you it, it reminds me of um, of leaders I've interviewed and founders I've interviewed who 
retire or sell their businesses. And it's an incredible achievement. You know, they've sold it for lots of money and or they've retired at the peak of their careers, but but they are missing something when it's over. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that they and it wasn't the pursuit of money. It wasn't the pursuit of fame. It wasn't the pursuit of success. It wasn't a goal. It was just it was being part of something that was propulsive, that was constantly in motion. And I I understand mm-hmm. the attraction of that. Mm-hmm. When you are part of something larger than yourself, you have a sense of purpose, mm. and that I think trumps the sense of contentment that someone might have for an achievement, I think. It's in part why you and I and sounds like others you've interviewed really savor the pursuit above stopping and pausing over something that's resulted in acclaim. Because you when you're pursuing you're part of something larger than than you are. Yeah. There's a a question about how you're going to continue and and endure and and innovate. There's a a kind of co-creation that's taking place. It's not simply about you. It's oftentimes exhilarating because it's you plus the unknown resources, the the unknown next context, you plus, 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 and and it's not about you really anymore, you know. It's it's about something much larger, and that's Uh, a beautiful way to live. Sarah Lewis is a professor at Harvard. She's currently working on a book about how the wars in the Caucasus in the 1800s shaped how Americans perceive race. Its working title is Caucasian War, How Race Changed Sight in America. And it's due out later this year. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built It Productions. Generative AI is not a one size fits all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today.